Uh, about a month or so after uh, Jesus entered my life, I felt like I needed to tell someone in my family what had happened. Of course, I was expecting a very negative response, uh, which I did get from my dad, especially, but uh, I didn't tell him just yet. The first person I thought I would tell was my younger brother. So uh, I found out from him that there was some sort of like a 5K fun run kind of thing that's going to be happening one weekend. And uh, so I said, well, I'll, I'll, come, uh, I'll come visit you and uh, you know, do this thing with you. So I drove uh, 12 hours from Houston to El Paso. That's one way. And uh, just to be with him for this weekend. And for most of the weekend, I kept stalling. I kept like sort of looking for the right moment, you know, to say something. But I really wasn't sure. And I'd never really done this before. I was kind of scared and all that kind of stuff. So at any rate, finally, just as I'm really like putting stuff in the truck to drive home 12 hours, uh, I finally said, uh, hey, I got something I need to tell you. I said, I, I became a Christian, and this is kind of how it happened, and I told him a little bit. And he just started laughing at me. <laughs> he says, Gary, you're an idiot. <laughs> and so that uh, was that was my first opportunity sharing the gospel with someone, and that was the response. So I had another 12 hours to beat myself up uh, mentally all the way home as I drove home. Like, I'm an idiot. I shouldn't have done that. That was crazy. What am I thinking? You know, that kind of thing. So I get home, and uh, I don't know, three or four weeks later, uh, my brother calls me one evening, and he seems kind of uh, serious. And I said, what's going on? He says, well, do you remember what you told me I needed to do to become a Christian? <laughs> I said, uh, uh, not exactly. <laughs> you know, I'm thinking, yeah, he's probably a Mormon or something. <laughs> you know, he, he just went you know, totally in the wrong direction. But uh, he said, well, you told me this, and then you told me this, and you told me this. I said, well, yeah, that's probably correct. He said, well, I I did that. I said, what? You, you did this by yourself? You see, I had been led to the Lord by somebody. I thought that's how it worked. You had to have someone lead you. <laughs> it wasn't anything you could do, just you and Jesus. And so I, uh, he says, well, is, is that okay? I said, you know, I'm not sure. Tell you what, I'll call my pastor at home, <laughs> which I also learned you're not supposed to do. <laughs> and so, uh, and I'll ask him to see if it's okay. He's like, okay, uh, what should I do now? Just, just calm down, just calm, don't die. Just don't die, okay? Let me check with the pastor. And so I, I call my pastor, and uh, he, of course he's trying not to be bothered that I called him at home on on the weekend or at night. And uh, he says that yes, that's that is possible. It's okay. I'm like okay, good. So I hang up from him. I call my brother back and go, "You're in." <laughs> oh boy, oh, that was so much fun. Anyways, <laughs> obviously. The way a person is birthed physically has impact on his or her physical health. Right? We know that. Uh, a bad physical birth can result in bad things for that person. A healthy physical birth generally results in a physically healthy human being. Well, the same thing is true spiritually. When a person is reborn correctly, this has impact on the quality of their spiritual life. A proper spiritual rebirth has a better chance of producing a spiritually 
healthy follower of Jesus of Nazareth. Sadly, the vast majority of people are actually stillborn in this country. They're still dead spiritually because nothing actually happened to them due to not being told the apostolic gospel. So to get down to the simple gospel the apostles preached, we need to deal with some issues that have led to the false versions, the many false versions at the worst and the incomplete gospels at the best. This is nothing new, for even Paul had to address this problem. In Galatians, he wrote, chapter 1, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Jesus and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Jesus. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than the one you accepted, let them be under God's curse. So again, different gospels, different versions had already popped up in the early church. Fact, the gospel has been changed not only in the Catholic Church, but also in Protestant, Evangelical, and Charismatic congregations. Some think that the Reformation made a correction to the corruption of the Catholic Church, especially when it comes to a gospel. However, although the Reformation was a beginning, it did not get to the apostolic gospel. For example, Martin Luther, the reformer, he had two main issues, scripture only and grace only. These were a good start. Luther himself, however, did not stick to scripture only. Having been an Augustinian monk, he simply could not truly disengage his understanding of the Bible from Augustine's teachings. And it was Augustine's teachings that influenced and created the Catholic Church with its perversions of apostolic Christianity, resulting in what I call one version of churchianity. There's still various types of churchianity today, not just within the Catholic stream, but certainly amongst evangelicals and, and uh, Protestants and uh, Charismatics, I mean, there's a lot of it all over the place. Further, like most Catholics before him, for some 1800 years, Luther was an anti Semite. In one of his pamphlets, he listed seven things that should be done to the Jews. Guess what? The Nazis made Luther's list their playbook. They did all seven to the Jews. And to honor Luther's list, the Nazis' uh, planning of Kristallnacht the night of broken glass that permeated Germany and Austria was purposely scheduled to coincide with Luther's birthday. The reason I'm telling you this is that I do not believe a person, no matter who they are, can be born again by the spirit of Jesus, claim to love Jesus, who is a Jew, and respect the writings of Paul, John, Peter, and James, all of whom are Jews, and yet not only hate Jews, but persecute and murder Jews. It's not that a person must be perfect, but come on, anti-Semitism is an obvious indicator that a person clearly has not received the spirit of Jesus, much less has a relationship with the real Jesus. 
So even for someone such as Martin Luther the Reformer or John Calvin, who claimed to become a Christian when he was baptized as an infant, something continued to be wrong with people's version of a gospel for another couple of centuries. Part of the problem is that many confuse the living God's mercy with his grace. This God's mercy is not giving a person what they deserve if that person repents. This God's grace is giving a repentant sinner the power upon their heart to resist sin and to seek his righteousness. Ephesians 2. For it is by grace, as caught us, the divine power upon the human heart. You've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, undeserved mercy, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are in God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. See, righteousness does result from actually being born again. The false gospel that is preached across this country allows people to feel that they're okay with holy God, even though they resist his righteousness and persist in deliberate sin and compromise with the world. People are even told this is okay because, you know, God just so loves them, as this love is the most important quality of the living God. So let's talk about John 3.16. First, all but one English translation translates verse 16 incorrectly. That's right, you heard me correctly. <laughs> incorrectly, as in not right. The second issue concerns who is speaking in verse 16 through 21. Then there are some important resulting misunderstandings that need addressing. There's only one English translation of the Bible, the Holman Christian Standard Bible, that even gets verse 16 somewhat correct. Here's what the HCSB version says. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son, or only begotten, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. You see, the first two words in this sentence, in the best manuscripts we have of the Gospel of John, are hutos gar. The Greek word hutos means so, and the Greek word gar means for. So the sentence begins, so for God loved. The word so is not modifying the word love. Thus, it is incorrect to translate this as God so, as intensely or in quantity, love. That is not what is being communicated in verse 16. The fact that the first two words in verse 16 are so for, utos gar, how would one smooth that out in a phrase in modern English? Wouldn't we say, therefore? And that is exactly the case here. The HCSB adds this footnote to their addition of the phrase in this way. The Greek word hutos, commonly translated in John 3.16 as so or so much, occurs over 200 times in the New Testament. Almost without exception, it's an adverb of manner, not degree. It only means so much, as in a degree, when modifying an adjective. Manner is primarily in view in John 3.16. You see, this God did not so love the world 
Using the word so to modify how intensely or how much he loved is incorrect. And translators know this. Why then do the, don't the publishers correct the error? Simply because they know that they will lose sales of their Bibles due to Americans thinking that the correct translation is wrong for people in this country are so used to hearing John 3.16 as God so loved. Here is a really good English translation of John 3.16. I've added the verb tenses because in Greek, verb tenses are really important. Therefore, God loved, past tense, one time in the past, the world and gave, one time in the past, in a sacrificial way, his only natural son, Jesus of Nazareth, so that all who believe, and it's go on believing, go on trusting, him might never be ruined beyond recovery, but go on having everlasting and abundant life. See, it's not about praying a prayer. It's to go on believing, go on obeying, go on trusting and loving. It's not a, just a one-time event. It's not how you start. It's how you finish. Secondly, if you have a red-letter edition of the Bible, verses 16 through 21 are not the words of Jesus. John stopped recording Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in verse 15. Verses 16 through 21 are John's words of commentary and explanation on what Jesus said to Nicodemus. A.T. Robertson's word pictures in the New Testament explains, Hutos gar. So far, this use as a transition is quite in John's style in introducing his comments. Chapter 2, uh, verse 25, 4, 8, 5, 13. In verses 16 through 21, John recapitulates in summary fashion the teaching of Jesus of Nazareth. So it's not Jesus talking, it's John. Another obvious reason we know verse 16 and following are not the words of Jesus is actually right there in verse 16. It is the title, the one and only, or the only begotten. Jesus never referred to himself this way. Jesus' consistent title for himself was the Son of Man. This phrase is one John used five times. John 1, 14, 1, 18, 3, 16, 3, 18, and 1 John 4, 9. This was John's phrase, not Jesus's. Next, so many think that John 3.16 is the ultimate message lost people need to hear. And in thinking this, they ignore the audience to whom John wrote this letter. Jewish believers, not unbelievers. John 20, verse 30. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may keep on, remember verb tense matters, believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He's not writing to lost people. He's writing to other Christians, trying to encourage them. When Christians begin sharing the gospel by telling unregenerated people that the living God loves them, they're doing something that neither Jesus nor the apostles nor the early church ever did. That's right. They never talk like that. 
The telling of the gospel does not begin with this God's love for people. For in the broken, worldly thinking of a lost person, love means a variety of things. Instead, note what Peter did the very first preaching of the apostolic gospel, which he began by telling the people, you murdered an innocent man. And at hearing of their sin, the people were, quote, cut to the heart and asked what they needed to do. Peter then responded by telling them, step one, repent. Turn from and turn toward. That's what it means to repent. It's not just saying, oops, my bad, sorry. Oh, I'm a sinner. No, 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 no. That's not repentance. That's an apology at best. The true gospel, the gospel the apostles preach, begins by confronting a person with the fact that they are a sinner who rightly deserves eternal separation from holy God. The fact that this approach has fallen out of vogue due to our overly sensitive, politically correct society should not change how the church preaches the apostolic gospel. The church is to tell people the truth, no matter how people feel about it. Remember, the goal is for people to be reborn properly. Now, this ends part one of four parts concerning this particular stone about the gospel. So there's three more still to come.